0: And so what we really need to enlighten us, to tell us the truth from the is the Word of God, which is perfect, reviving the soul. Now I'm sure many of you will disagree with that, that's absolutely fine, I just want to lay my cards out the table right now, that's where I'm coming from. If you've got questions, we'll uh, come to that a bit later. But first of all, why are the question is important? Why is this important? I think there are a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, this time we'll here, a bit of his mind, Richard Dawkins. One of his books, the God Delusion, where Darwin has made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. So his, his open gambit there is actually science tells me all I need to know: God is out of the job and no longer exists. Similarly, um, Professor Peter Atkins, is a physical chemistry lecturer in Oxford, um, he's written millions of textbooks. If you've ever studied physical chemistry, or at least I have. You'll uh, use his book, Molecular like, Cosmic accounts as well. Uh, and he said, Science is omnipotent. In other science will discover everything. Anything that's worth learning, you can find out from science. And even if people haven't heard those things, those ideas percolate into common thinking. Uh, and also the way the media talks about science and about uh, faith and religion. So I suspect if we went out onto the streets of Chiswick here, or the streets of Brentford or anywhere, people would probably say something like this. Science is about facts. Men and women in white, white blankets deal with facts. They cure cancer, and they develop iPads. Religion, that's just about faith. It's about believing stuff we don't really know, and can't prove. It, it's, about, it's about values, perhaps, not about facts. And I think that's a kind of common discrepancy the um, kind of idea that science can or will explain everything. Everything's really cool, so we don't need any uh, I think that's the way most people um, would think uh, in this day and age. And that's very crucial because, perhaps as that shows, science is a power word in our culture. Science is a power word. If you hear scientists say or, you know, did a positive conversation so I said, oh, scientific study has just shown that all of a sudden people will pay deference to that person and that view. Now, I'm not saying that's entirely wrong. I'm a trained scientist myself. I think science is a good thing. I love it. We'll hear more about that later on. Uh, and so don't hear what I'm not saying. But in our culture, at this time, science is a power word, And so that's why lot of Christians can feel on the back foot when they hear people talking about the age of the universe, or the origins of life, or evolution, or whatever it is. Uh, science is a big power word. Uh, and yeah, we're really pleased with that. It's good for breakthroughs against cancer and against dementia. It's good to play use a laptop, and you don't have to have a flip chart on handwriting. Believe me, that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> let's get into what these words actually mean. So what's the faith thing? Uh, where's the, uh, the- it's about... It's about values, perhaps, not about facts. And I think that's a kind of common discrepancy. And the kind of idea that science can or will explain everything, everything is really important, so we don't need it anymore. I, I, I think that's the way most people um, would think uh, in this day and age. And that's very crucial because, perhaps, as that shows, science is a power word in our culture. Science is a power word. If you hear scientists say, or in a dinner party conversation, someone says, oh, scientific study has just shown, then all of a sudden people will pay deference to that person and that view. Now, I'm not saying that's entirely wrong. I'm a trained scientist myself. I think science is a good thing. I love it. I'll hear more about that later on. Um, So don't hear what I'm not saying. But in our culture at this time, science is a power word. And so, that's why a lot of Christians can feel on the back foot when they hear people talking about the age of the universe or the origins of life or evolution or whatever it is. Uh, science is a power word. And, and yeah, we can be pleased with that. It's good there are breakthroughs against cancer and against dementia. It's good I can use a laptop. You don't have to have a flip chart with my handwriting on. Believe me, that's a good thing. Um, but let's get into what these words actually mean. So what does faith mean? Well, I went to the uh, the Ultimate Dictionary, the one on my I, I Apple MacBook, <clears throat> and it defines faith in this way. A strong belief in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual conviction rather than proof. See what that's saying? Faith is not about proof. It's about my personal conviction. It's about values, what I think. Not about actual reality and evidence and proof. Richard Dawkins has perhaps been more provocative in the way he puts it. Faith is belief in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Uh, And that, of course, is a great straw man for him to set up in his books. Um, But is that really what Christians mean when they talk about faith? I noticed Webster's Dictionary online uh, talks about belief. They're using Dawkins' word as may suggest going along without careful thought, and isn't that how a lot of people, maybe some of you here, think about religion or the Christian faith? It's really going along without proper thought. Uh, if that's what you think, I, I hope tonight I encourage you to think differently, because that is not what I think. More importantly, it's not the way the Bible uses the word. Um, so what we're going to look at now is kind of yeah, what, what science is and where it came from and what faith really is. So first of all, how does the Bible talk about faith? Is faith really belief in a dogma without the, in the absence of evidence? Well, that is not the way the Bible talks. So for example, Luke chapter 1, one of uh, the longest account of Jesus' life. Uh, Luke, who was a doctor himself, uh, writing, says this at the very start. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, Theophilus being the guy he's writing to. Why did he write it? That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In other words, there's a lot of stuff out there, Theophilus. I want you to have all the evidence in front of you. So I've gone out and been a diligent historian and gone back to the eyewitnesses, gone back to those who from the beginning were servants of the word, Jesus' phrase. And I've written down an orderly account to persuade you, to encourage you, to give you Confidence. We'll take another of the gospel writers, uh, John, uh, <clears throat> who probably wrote his gospel a bit after the others. Uh, the end of it says this about why he's written, or towards the end of it. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. By signs, he's talking about the miracles he's shown us Jesus doing in the course of his, his account. Is there any seven there, seven or eight, depending on how you count them. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. They were viewed by eyewitnesses, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe. And that believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing you might have life in his name. Do you see why he's writing? He's writing to give evidence to persuade. Faith is not belief in a dogma in the absence of proof, in the evidence of proof, in the teeth of proof. It is not holding on to something because I think I must do. When the Bible uses the word faith, it's talking about trusting someone who has shown himself to be trustworthy. Faith in the Bible is trusting someone who's proven himself to be trustworthy. Now, think think about your general relationships. If you're married, do you trust the person you're married to? I imagine you do. If you don't, I'm sorry, that would be a bad situation to be in. So I mean that in all seriousness. I realise that marriages don't always work out. Or think about when you go to buy something on Amazon, or when you go to try and find a plumber, or when you go, as I had to a couple of years ago, to find a builder, what do you do? Well, in my case, I spoke to a guy I just met, who put me in touch with somebody, who his sister who put him in touch with, Rianne's at the back there, hence this story is fresh in my mind, and he came and, as I was told he would do, did a fantastic job for us. But I had to trust, I could trust, because of the evidence I'd seen, because of the relationships I'd built. Or as I say, you go on to order something online, you look on eBay, you look at the reviews of the, the sellers, don't you? Can I trust this person if I send them my money? See, trust is at the heart of faith. Faith isn't something abstract, Idea. Faith in the Bible is trusting someone who has shown themselves to be trustworthy. And that means it is relational. It is about a person. It's not like Star Wars, you know, feel the force, Luke. It's not that. It's not some kind of impersonal being out there. I mean, true in Hinduism, um, any God you might believe in it is part of an impersonal being. But not in Christianity, not in the Bible. It's relational, it's about a person. The other thing to say is it is rational. It's based on evidence. It's not a leap in the dark. It's not a leap in the dark. And that's suitable. That's because, in terms of the whole Bible story, God made human beings in his image, we are told. I mean we in some way represent and show what God is like. And part of that is God is relational. Father, God in the Bible is a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. There is a relationship there, so we are relational. And part of it is God does things in a rational, organized way. And so we are rational as well. So that's what faith is. Faith is trusting someone who has shown themselves to be trustworthy. And that's why, hopefully from now on in this talk, I'm not going to talk about science and faith because that's a sort of that's a straw man. It's about science and Christianity, or science and the biblical worldview. The picture of the world the bible paints for us so what is science well again i went to the uh, the great dictionary on my macbook and it says um, science is the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of physical and natural world through observation and experiment well that's that's a pretty good definition um, but perhaps it doesn't cover everything you know, what do we do with those observations well, we tend to try and formulate them into to models and laws and things, don't we? Hence, we have laws laws of thermodynamics, the law of gravity. We have models which are constantly run through computers these days to see what may or may not happen. So here's a kind of refined definition that comes from uh, a book that is on your uh, recommended on, on your handout there, in the bibliography at the back. Um, The author Jack Collins, or C. John Collins, Jack as he's more commonly known, um, was an engineer at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. That's where he trained originally. Um, He subsequently is retrained and is is one of the world's leading Hebrew scholars on the Old Testament and has a great interest because of his background in the whole science and Christianity uh, era. Here's his definition. A science is a discipline in which one studies features of the world around us and tries to describe its observations systematically and critically. So it's, it's about observing, trying to systematise, and being critical in doing that, thinking what works, what doesn't, what, what will actually fit in, what doesn't. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that in science, we've got empirical data, stuff you look at, stuff that's publicly accessible, stuff that can be published in a journal. When I was working on my master's, it wasn't very interesting data, but the data all to do with nuclear magnetic resonance and whether there was such a thing as a dynamic phase shift in spin-free half nuclei. I can't even remember what that means now, to be honest. It's such a long time ago, and it didn't make much sense at the time. But there's empirical data there. It can be looked at by everybody. There's discursive reasoning. What's that? That means... um, putting our reasons for things into words that can then be discussed to defend them or to articulate them. And that means it's subject to the principles of sound thinking and reasoning. Which is a sort of obvious thing, really. But you, can't, you can't suddenly say black is white. That makes no sense. You've got to be logical and rational about it. And of course, that's where the, the power of, of science comes from. The other thing to say is it is a human activity. Now, as human beings, we'd love to think of ourselves as being objective, don't we? But actually, we can't be. We can't be, because we all stand in a particular place in space and time, and so we come loaded up with a whole bunch of ideas which we probably can't even articulate. So your kind of natural view of the world, as people are imagining who've been in West London for a while, is probably very different to... The natural ideas of someone who's grown up uh, in a village in Afghanistan or something. That's because of our cultural backgrounds are different, and none of us are truly objective. And so what we have to do is, is what philosophers we call distanciation, to separate ourselves as much as possible from what we're observing. Try and be as neutral as possible, um, because the fact is, actually, no scientists are truly neutral. We all get bought into certain ideas. I don't know if you've ever seen the film The Theory of Everything about the life of Stephen Hawking. I've only seen bits of it, actually. But there's one particular bit that sticks in my mind where a young Dr. Hawking, I think he just got his PhD at the time, uh, is giving a lecture in Cambridge uh, about his, his theory that he's putting forward. And there's absolute uproar, absolute outcry amongst some of these professors. They were talking rubbish. Why? Because they were so heavily emotionally invested in that particular idea that they had, that they couldn't really allow it it to be challenged. And so it's important we try and practice distanciation when we're doing science, like distance ourselves from from owning something, getting emotionally attached to it, try to look at it objectively, as objectively as is humanly possible. Now, it's one of the limits of science. Science is a powerful thing, as we know. Um, I'm grateful for for hospitals and the technology that exists there. I'm grateful for uh, surgeons doing operations and Medics prescribing drugs. I'm grateful for the people down the road in GlaxoSmithKline developing drugs day by day and sending them out into the world. Grateful for people developing computers to make my life easier sometimes. <clears throat> but there are limits. So science is descriptive, not prescriptive. So science describes what happens. And because the universe works in a generally a very ordered way, it can be predictive but it can't command anything to happen. And there is a limitation. We talk about observing things as being part of science. Some events cannot be observed because they only happen once. Or some some experiments uh, can't get back to repeating those events. So the beginning of time, for example. Now, of course, we can do lots of experiments measuring things that have happened since, or measuring the background radiation in the universe and the speed of light and all these kind of things. And we can fit all that data into a theory, into a a story, if you like, a theory, a mathematical story, that makes sense of the data. But we can't... It's not repeatable. We can't do it again. And that's a limitation. That's a limitation. And there's also a limitation with the actual method. So uh, some would talk about methodological naturalism. So here is a quote from um, an American body, the National Association of of science teachers it's a description of science science is limited to explaining the natural world by means of natural processes it cannot use supernatural causation in its explanations similarly science is precluded from making statements about supernatural forces because these are outside its provenance now do you hear right there they smuggled in a big presupposition and a big limitation saying, actually, science cannot speak about the supernatural. Science assumes there is no supernatural. Science assumes we are in a closed system that is purely material. There is nothing outside that system. Now, that means there is there's something, which is you know, something science cannot do. Now, that methodology is fine and good and proper, provided you recognize the limitations. The danger is when that spills over into a philosophical naturalism, which then just says, actually, there is nothing other than the world around us. If I can use a very silly illustration for a moment. When I was a kid playing football in the park, there was, you know, we didn't have goalposts. We put jumpers down either end of our little pitch to make the goals, right? Now, what did some wag do almost every game? They'd pick up one jumper and put it on top of the other. What have they just done? They've removed the goalpost, so someone cannot score a goal. And that effectively is what philosophical naturalism does. It says, actually, we're not going to allow you to talk about God at all, until to take that goalpost away, so now, guess what? I'm going to explain everything. And if I can't explain it, then you just have to ignore it, and take my word for it. So there are those kind of limits there. Which then leads me on to another area before we, uh, before we have a bit of a break. And that is, what is the relationship between Christianity and science? What is the relationship between Christianity and science? So I want to ask you a little question. I should have asked you this before that quote went up there. Why do you think modern science, as we have it today, really took off around the sort of 15th, 16th, 17th century in Western Europe? why didn't it take off for example in China let's face it China had a printing press a long time before Europe why didn't it take off in Egypt or <clears throat> anywhere in the Muslim world where Muslim mathematics and, uh, and, ph- and uh, mathematics particularly were far more advanced around a th- around 1000 AD than they were uh, here in Europe why did it happen? Well, a number of historians of science would say, actually, the reason is the worldview that people had in, um, during the sort of Renaissance times, 15th, 16th century in Europe, which was a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, a worldview that said, there is just one God out there, and he made everything. That is the starting point for science, in a way. If you've got multiple gods, like the Greeks believed in, or, or as in Hinduism, then there's no sense of order. There's no sense of purpose. There's no reason to expect there to be any kind of logic, anything consistent in the universe. Whereas the Bible's worldview, that there is one God in control of everything, there's one God who, if you read Genesis chapter 1, puts everything in its place. He's very ordered right at the start. That is the soil from which science was able to grow and blossom and flourish. So here's a quote from a chemist. We've got to quote some chemists sometimes. Uh, this is a guy called Melvin Calvin, who won a Nobel Prize a long, long time ago. He said, As I try to explain the origin of this conviction, it seemed to, I seem to find it in a notion discovered two or 3,000 years ago, mainly that the universe is governed by a single god and is not the product of the whims of many gods. The monotheistic view seems to me, seems to be the foundation for modern science. And I think that's right. I always have a little smile that uh, Richard Dawkins, who has built his career at the University of Oxford, is so against the idea of God. Do you know what the motto of Oxford University is? I won't do it in Latin, because I remember the Latin. The Lord is light. The Lord is light. The God, Dawkins, doesn't exist in him. doesn't believe in him. <clears throat> But I also want to show you Christianity is the basis for how we, or a Christian worldview, I should say, is a basis for how we can do science and why we like to do science. It's The basis for how we can do science in a, consi- in a consistent way, and why we like to do science. That doesn't mean you need to be a Christian to do science, obviously. But here's uh, here's John Polkinghorne, who was uh, became an Anglican minister eventually, is um, actually um, professor of mathematical physics at University Cambridge University. Uh, in the 1970s before going into being ordained as an Anglican clergyman and a fellow of the Royal Society as well he said this physics is powerless to explain its faith in the rational intelligibility of the universe simply because you cannot do any physics unless you believe it in the first place Let me read that again. Physics is powerless to explain its faith in the rational intelligibility of the universe simply because you cannot do any physics unless you believe in it in the first place. What's he saying? He's saying if you want to do physics, you have to actually believe that the universe can be interpreted, that the universe can be observed, and models can be built, that maths can help to explain things. If you don't believe that, you can't do it. So it's, it's an assumption that's behind all physics. And it's a good assumption. But I'd like to say Christianity provides a reason why it's a good assumption. Because Christianity says actually there is one God who made everything. And he provided and he is a God of order. Or will take this. Some some people seem to think that um, people believe in God because they can't explain stuff. That God is just a God of the gaps, if you will. So if, three or four years ago now there was a programme on television uh, with Brian Cox called the Human Universe. And one episode in that, uh, episode two, I believe, about 50 minutes into the recording, if you're ever watching it, uh, he was showing an island that had just been formed in the Pacific in the last few years because of a volcanic eruption. We now uh, understand about plate plate tectonics and eruptions and all this kind of stuff. So this island now exists. Brian Cox said this If we didn't know better, we might ascribe that creation, that creation of that island, to an act of the gods. But we do know better because we know a bit about geology and we've done some science. It comes from volcanism. So we have a mechanism for the creation of the new land. Well, in a sense, he's right. We have a mechanism to explain how that new island came up and there's a good explanation. It's a good explanation. The way he's wrong is to think that that's all belief in God is. A God of the gaps, a God to fill in things we can't understand. Now, undoubtedly for our ancestors... Many did believe in God because there were things they didn't understand. But it is a, a philosophical fallacy, a genetic fallacy, people, philosophers would say. To say, if you've, if you've proven that something can arise for a, a, a bad reason, then it can't be true. So here's how Richard Swinburne, uh, who is, again, another Oxford professor, this time emeritus professor of the philosophy of religion, of the Christian religion, puts it. He said, I am not postulating God of the gaps, God merely to explain the things that science has not yet explained. I am postulating God to explain why science explains. I do not deny that science explains, but I postulate God to explain why science explains. You can tell he's a philosopher, can't you, using the word postulate that many times in one sentence. Um, But you see what he's saying. The Christian God is not a God of the gaps. He's not a God to explain things that, that science doesn't yet explain. He's a God whose existence explains why science can explain. It explains why it's actually a reasonable thing to go and do science. That's why I want to say Christianity is the basis for how we do science. Um, I also want to argue or suggest to you, it's the basis for why we want to do science. It's the way we're wired. It's the way God made us. Right back in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, first chapter of the Bible, God says, let us make man in our own image. And the image of God after our own likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. The image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. So right there we get the equality of men and women. And God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every little thing, every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, Theologians have come to call that the cultural mandate, the mandate for developing uh, the world, for developing science, for example. It's all part of the things that God made us to do. So I'd like to say Christianity provides a a reason for doing science. I could give other examples. It should also be noted that many of the early scientists were indeed uh, Christians. Whether that's Isaac Newton or... Johannes Kepler, who spent years and years looking at the stars to come out with the, his various theories of planetary movements. Um, a lot of early, early, early modern scientists were Christians. So let's just think briefly then. And then we'll break for a discussion. Uh, about what are the possible relationships between a scientific claim and what the Bible teaches? I'm guessing that a lot of us are here because we, we think there are conflicts and we're worried by those conflicts. So what are the different ways the Bible and science can relate well the first potential way is through compartmentalization that says actually they're in separate compartments they'll deal with different things so Stephen Jay Gould who was a uh, paleontologist I think at Harvard used to talk about non-overlapping magisteria so religion deals with kind of reasons behind things science deals with the facts but generally that's not true because generally the Bible talks about public events, things that happened in history. The New Testament is full of references to witnesses to Jesus rising from the dead, for example, or even the Old Testament. So compartmentalization generally doesn't work. In some areas, science and and Christianity can be complementary. That's certainly true of most of what I did as a chemist. The Bible doesn't really have anything to speak about um, what happens when you put an acid with an alkali. It's not of interest. It's not part of what the Bible is seeking to teach us about. Uh, And so often those two statements can be complementary. For example, imagine a big cake sitting here. A chemical explanation of how did this cake get here could be well, a whole bunch of hydrocarbons and a whole bunch of proteins were kind of mixed up with some sugars and that's what we got. Of course, a better explanation would be that... um, Maddie and whoever organized tonight got a whole load of cakes including a nice gluten-free Victoria sponge I had earlier and they brought it here so we could share and eat it. Now, They're complementary explanations, aren't they? One might well be the kind of result you get if you put a bit of Victoria sponge into a mass spectrometer and see what's in it. The other is a complementary explanation, which is perhaps more helpful on an occasion like this. In other areas there can be coordination. So science can say something which then causes us to look, which kind of seems to conflict with something the Bible says, which sends us back to look at both science and the Bible again, so actually, what's right here? So to give an example from archaeology, um, <clears throat> at some point, it, it, people would have thought that the Bible's timeline of kings was very confusing, because it talks about, so if you ever read the Old Testament history books, certain kings reigning for a certain amount of time, and another king reigning for another amount of time, and if you add those things up, it seems to make more years than there are. How does that happen? But through archaeology, we've dug up some dates from uh, other nations around, uh, and it all corroborates. You start to understand actually some of these reigns were um, the, the new king was reigning at the same time as his father was kind of dying off, if you like. Uh, we don't have it here, but you can imagine if Prince Charles had started reigning on the coming alongside the queen a bit more on her 90th birthday or something, <clears> or <throat> her 80th birthday, let me say. Uh, and so there can be coordination. You can, one thing can send us back to, to look at the Bible afresh, or back in the time of Galileo, and that sort of period, when science started to suggest, actually, you know what? The, the sun does not go around the earth, the earth goes around the sun. Um, if the church had been more sensible at the time, rather than uh, trying Galileo for heresy, they should have gone back to the Bible and go, hang on, does the Bible really say the sun goes around the earth? To which the answer is no. The Bible uses phenomenological language. It describes the sun rising and the sun setting just as the BBC website does if you look up the weather for Chiswick. It describes sunrise and sunset. It's phenomenological language. It's describing what we see. So compartmentalization, they're completely different. Complementarity, they give um, complementary descriptions of something. Coordination, an apparent contradiction can be resolved with further study. Um, But then, of course, we get on to conflict. Because the Bible, perhaps unlike Hindu scriptures, for example, makes claims about events that happened in space and time, there are sometimes conflicts. And when they happen, we have to think carefully about them. And that's where I go back to my fundamental conviction. The heavens declare the glory of God. The universe tells us something about the maker and that the law of the lord is perfect the bible tells us more and kind of fills in our understanding helps us to think and understand our world